I'm glad you're here tonight. Welcome to our Wednesday night summer series. I know you've uh, benefited already this summer from the speakers you've heard, and we're always glad to be able to have uh, men come in and speak for us during the summer. Gives you an opportunity to hear some different people and to be blessed by their lessons. I asked Eddie if he would like to introduce the speaker tonight, and he said no. He thought I knew him better. And, and I can honestly say that of all the speakers on the Wednesday night series, this is the only one that I have known since the day of his birth. I've known some of the others for a while, but nobody as long as I, I've known this one. We're, we're glad that Kevin Hahn is here tonight. He has been with us a number of times, not only on Wednesday nights, but he's been here for teachers' banquets and for senior banquets and for youth uh, meetings, and you might as well move here, Kevin, if you're going to stay here all the time. Kevin preaches for the Lake Houston Church uh, on the north side of Houston, and um, that, that church is a good church and a growing church, and we're glad that he and Heather are involved there. The, Heather and Kevin have also given Janice and me six grandchildren which is half of our grandchildren, so they've done more than their share. And, and uh, they're all great children, and we love them all. We're going to take just a moment to uh, pray together before Kevin speaks, and then he'll be here to speak to us. Our God and Father, we're thankful tonight that we can share this time with each other. We're especially grateful that the purpose of our coming together is to learn from your word and to be edified by what we hear. We're thankful that your word is powerful and can reach our hearts. We pray to be good listeners tonight and we pray that what we hear will help us as we try to make our lives what they ought to be in your sight. We're grateful for Jesus and for his wonderful love and sacrifice. We're grateful for your plan that is so marvelous that it will not only give us happiness in this life, but joy for all eternity if we're faithful to you. Bless us now as we enter this period of thought and study, and we pray that you'll be with Kevin as he speaks with us, to us. Pray all this through Jesus. Amen. I want to say one other thing. I, I didn't want to quit before I said this. Thank you. You turned me off before I turned off. Uh, if, if I were introducing Kevin in India, this would be a little different matter. <laughs> one of our translators is a really wonderful guy, but he gets a little carried away. And he knew that Kevin had been in the Air Force. And he, first of all, he made him a pilot. And then he made him an astronaut, and I think he was in charge of all the military by the time we finally calmed him down and said, look, don't go overboard on this. So here's General Hahn. <laughs> you know, Dad, Dad earned the right to make his jokes this past week, and he watched our kids with, with Mom. Yes, it started out he was going to watch our kids while Heather and I were gone. 
But it was also our friend's two children, and then it was also Amy's youngest daughter. And and uh, we have a, a pretty big size, pretty big indoor dog, and, and we thought, oh, I hope the dog's okay. The night before we left, the former church secretary said, could you, could you watch our dog while we're gone? Well, okay, yeah, so there's a, a second dog inside, and, and then uh, the day that we were gone, we got a call from a neighbor who wanted Caleb to watch their little four-month puppy. I thought, okay, nine children, three indoor dogs, 20 chickens, six ducks. I thought, I hope Dad has a good time. <laughs> I hope he enjoys this. But, uh, but it was neat to hear the kids uh, talk about getting to spend that time with, with grandparents. Not, it's nice to be able to come back the other direction. Um, you know who, Don, I hope this doesn't make you sad. You know, I was thinking about Barbara on the way over here. Because after I would speak here on Wednesday night, Barbara would meet me out in the foyer. And she would say, I didn't get to, to hear you tonight because I was keeping the babies, watching the kids. And I thought, I always looked forward to that as much as anything, knowing that there were people here who were doing other work. So I thought about those moms um, that Barbara let here. Um, anyway, there's a, there's a lot of good in this congregation, a lot of, a lot of people that we have loved for a very long time. Um, and it's always nice to come back and, and teach God's word to you and get to, to preach and speak to you. Near where we live, there's a, a family. They've got a sign out front in their yard, and it has the Bluebell logo on it, a little cow being led by the, the person. And it, and it, you know that flag that has the cannon on it that says, come and take it? she got the Bluebell logo with that flag design that says, come and take it. And, and I mentioned that, and someone said that there was a very wealthy person, evidently, who's bought up Bluebell. Is that right? So, some investor has bought the, the, the company and says he's going to get it back on its feet and, and, and get it going again. And, and I thought about how often the Bible talks about the church being bought, but, but not with money. The church was bought with blood. The Bible talks about the church that was bought with his own blood. And, and so we have an example of a guy buying a business with his cash, an example of Jesus buying the church with his blood. And, and sometimes we get things turned around a little bit. We start to think of the church as a business or a company. And so what you, you see more and more often is that people shop. And we get calls like this a lot during the week, and someone will call and they'll say, we just wondered what you had for our kids, or what, what you have for us, or what, what programs do you have for us? And it's, it's kind of like you would go to a store and say, well, you know, what, what do you have for sale here? And if I'm not interested, well, then I'll just, I'm just shopping. And we talk about church shopping and, and looking for places. But we very much get that backwards. The, the Bible says the church is not a store. It's not a business. It's a family. And we have these relationships, and, and relationships can get really messy and, and, and difficult. And any of us who have family, parents, brothers, sisters, children, we, we know that those relationships get difficult sometimes. But we have to start out with the idea about not getting it backwards. See, when we reverse those two things, for example, can you imagine sitting down with your kids? If one of my kids came in and said, now look, Dad, if I'm going to live in this house, I need to know what you're going to offer me. What do you have for me that's going to keep me here? You know, that, that's how you would, but in a family, the, the, the members of the family don't negotiate for what's going to keep them there, what you're going to do for them. If you reversed it on the other side, you think of a customer going in and uh, asking, you know, what, what time do I clock in tomorrow? Where am I going to be working? I'm walking up to a cash register and start trying to, to run the till. 
They think, you, you don't work here. You're, you're not part of this. You're a customer. You're one of them. You can't go in the employee-only area. You can't, you can't be in this area because you're not part of the, the inside of this. You're not part of the back office. You're just a customer. It makes a big difference. Because in business, we have this saying, the customer is always right. The customer is always right. In the church, is that true? Is the member always right? It, well, you're the member. You, know, you must be right. Whatever you're, we, we know that that's not true. The church is not a, a business. When you're in the church, you're part of a family. And there are certain expectations as part of that family. The expectation to belong and to participate and to use your talents. These are not expectations from men, but expectations from God. You're part of a family. Each one has been placed in the church just as he desired. For a purpose, for part of his plan, that God has a, an idea there, a place for you to work. So if we start off with the, with the right thinking, the church is not a business or something to shop at. It's a family with God as the Father and us as his children. Now, what do you know about children? Are children always right? If the Bible says we're his children, if we... Children are not always right. Children are often rebellious. They often go against their parents' authority. And so we know that this will happen in the church sometimes. Sometimes we'll have problems in the church. And, and sometimes we get it backwards. We will rail against sin in the world. Look what's going on in the world. Look at those awful sinners. Look what they're doing out there. And when there's sin in our family... We kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, well, what can you say? Now, we're very angry about the sin out there, but, but when there's sin in our family, when there's problems in our family, sometimes we don't respond the way that we should. But this is not new. This is not some new thing. The letter to the Corinthians is one of the earliest letters chronologically in the New Testament. So if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you'll turn there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll start looking in those first two verses. And we find out that even back then, the world creeps into the church, the worldly things, and sometimes in the church, things got even worse than they were in the world. Chapter 5 says, It is actually reported that there's a, there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated, even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. I've seen a dozen different expl explanations about what that might be referring to. But, but here's what you need to know about it. Even the people outside the church thought it was over the top. Even those outside, the, whatever was going on in the church, however you wanted to define what was going on, not even the pagans put up with it. Now, you know you've got something going on in the church, and so the church in Corinth said, look, not even the pagans put up with this. We're the church of the living God. We've got to put a stop to this. Right? Not at all. Verse 2 says, and you are arrogant. Now, what would make you arrogant about having sin and, and a problem like this in your own family? C can you picture a group of religious people maybe saying, look how, look how tolerant we are. We, 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 we allow everything. You know, look, look, how, look how advanced we are in our thinking. Look how developed we are in our thinking that we've got this sin. But, but it just shows how, uh, how inclusive we are. He says, you're, you're arrogant. And he said, ought you not rather to mourn? Should, shouldn't you be bothered by this? Shouldn't you be sad about this? Shouldn't you be mourning that the church has lost its way, that this individual has, has lost its way? Let him who's done this be 
be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. This idea of removing someone from among you. If the customer is always right, this is not possible. But the idea here, and we're going to look at this idea, and it's, it's interesting, when, anytime I ever have a lesson or anything on church discipline, I can always count on one thing. Out in the foyer, people will walk up. Who's in trouble? They always say, who is this about? Who's in, who's in trouble? Who's, who's done something wrong? Do you know the best time to talk about church discipline? Is when you're not talking about someone specific. Uh, to, to talk about it when there isn't that personal bias. When you're, when you're not pointing someone specifically in a congregation and, and, and holding them up for derision. Or just, but to be able to study these things in the Bible when there's a calm sense and you can talk about God's will in this. I'm going to look at a few things about what Paul said and, and what the Bible teaches us about this family discipline. First, I want to look at the power behind it. Look in verse 4. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Let's stop, stop there for just a moment. The name of Jesus and the power of Jesus. Is that important? Is the power behind the discipline important? See, this is what happens. Can you imagine when someone in the church, you walk up to them and you say, you know, old, old Bill here is not happy with how you've been acting. He's not happy with how you've been living. He's got a real issue with you. This man, who's also a sinner, has a real problem with you. But the Bible says in the, in the name of Jesus. In, in, in Jesus' name, in his, by his authority. We see in the Great Commission in, in Matthew chapter 28, if you look earlier in your Bibles, in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are, we are not the ones who draw the lines that get stepped over. We're not the ones who say where the boundaries are. You know, one, one of the most encouraging things I ever heard from an elder one time, I, uh, I said something to him about a difficult decision they were working on and how I appreciated them making that decision. He said, yeah, I said, I've been an elder for over 20 years. And he said, it took me a while to learn that it's not our job to, to make doctrine because that's already established. It's our job to help with decisions based on that doctrine, to help with things that, that flow out of those teachings. And, uh, but it comes down to, the, in the name of Jesus, we're not the ones who draw the line. Jesus said, teach them all that I have commanded you. Let them know what I have said. And he says, by the power of Jesus, who delivers us? Who saves us? Who has the right to, to rebuke us and cause that sorrow that leads to repentance? It's, it's by the power of Jesus and, and understanding the power behind it. And it's strange because he says it's the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus. But then he says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man. Now, if it's the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus, then why would the church have to do the delivering, the turning over, the, the putting out? You remember in the, in the story of Jonah in the Old Testament? And, and they're all trying to figure out what's, what's going on in, in, in the book of Jonah. The men are rowing hard in verse 13 of chapter 1. The men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. 
And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. God could have knocked Jonah off the boat. God had the fish prepared, but the men had to put him off the ship. I don't know that I know the answer to that about why God expects for us to be involved. He'll draw the line. He'll provide the authority. He'll provide the power. But he very much puts that on us, just like he does in our physical families. God says, here's how to raise your children. Here's what to teach your children. Fathers, here's what you do. Mothers, here's what you need to do. Now you do it. That discipline is, is the church's responsibility by the power of, of Christ, and the power of his name, the name of Jesus, the power of Jesus. That's a lot of that's a lot of trouble. It's a lot it's a lot easier just to ignore problems. It's it's difficult. You know, as a parent, you think discipline, especially when you're home and you're tired at night, you don't feel like disciplining. It's hard to get that energy sometimes to do the right thing. And so you ask yourself, is it worth it? In the church, is it worth it? What are we dealing with here? Why why would we care what's going on in other people's lives? Look, the Bible goes on to tell us the purpose of the discipline. Look in verse 5, second part of verse 5. Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what's the purpose? Well, when I'm with you there in spirit, you deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that, what? So that his spirit may be saved. If that is not the purpose for any discipline in the church, it, the church is wrong. If discipline is to win an argument, that's wrong. If discipline is to look good to other churches, it's wrong. If it's to establish a reputation so that people will admire you for your faithfulness to the word, it's wrong. The purpose of discipline, the purpose of discipline is to save the soul. It's about the individual. It's not about reputation. It's not about appearance. It is primarily and, and fully about the salvation of that person's soul. That is the most delicate thing you're dealing with. That is the most valuable thing you're dealing with. Because you know what? If I have to lose my reputation to do the right thing and save a soul, I'll lose my reputation to save that brother. What they think in the world does not compare to what God thinks about that soul. And, and keeping the purpose in our minds, you know, and think about this. Every parent probably at some point has said this when they discipline a child. This is for, yes, your own good. Now, as a kid, that's crazy talk. That's just crazy talk. There is. There's nothing about that that feels good at the moment. There's nothing about that that you think, oh yeah, this is, this is great. But in the parent's mind, what they're trying to tell them is that, that there's purpose in this. I'm, I'm disciplining you with, with the end in mind, with this, with this motive for later. Notice what he says, that his, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. When, when is Paul thinking about? On, on judgment day. Now, when you raise a child, when you discipline a child, you have to have an eye to the future. You know, you see this in our culture. If a parent says, well, let me ask you this. When can you be friends with your children? 
later. Later. If you try to be friends with them now, when they're in the home, when they're little, you'll pay. You have to be mom and dad. You have to discipline now because you have an eye toward the future. You think, you know, down there we can be friends. Down there we can have a relationship, an adult relationship. But, but you have this eye toward the future. And do you know where we get that idea? Do you know where we see that model of, you know what? Right now I'm going to discipline you so that we can be good later. It's right there in Hebrews chapter 12 when we look at our Heavenly Father. We look in Hebrews chapter 12 and, and verse 10. And it's talking about our earthly fathers. And it says, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Now, look at the present. For the moment, all discipline seems, what does your Bible say? Unpleasant? Mine says painful. Uh, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, or afterwards, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Now, it's painful. Later, it's peaceful. And so this idea of Paul saying, right now, you're going to deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that, in the day of the Lord, you'll save his soul. To do now what is a, a blessing later. And not just that. You know, we, we talked about, um, uh, this is for your own good. There's another neat little parental phrase that I never believed. Have you ever used this? Yes. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. <laughs> wow, must have hurt you a lot. <laughs> but but it's, it's the idea of I, I don't want to do this. It, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. But you know, in the discipline, in the godly discipline of the church and, the, and, and, and God's way, it's different. This is going to bless you and us. Not this is going to hurt you and hurt me worse. This is going to be good for you. And it's going to be good for us as a church. Because Paul says this, when we look back in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says this about the, the church, that your boasting's not good. Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And you know what? We hear that with non-Jewish ears. We don't, we don't hear that as a Jew would hear that. If you were Jewish and you grew up and, and Paul said, you know what? It's, it's, like the, it's like cleaning out the leaven. If you were a little Jewish boy or a little Jewish girl, do you know that even today in, in Orthodox Jewish families, that they have a, a ceremony right before the Passover where as a family they go all through the house looking for any leaven, any yeast. And whatever they find, they gather together and they take it outside of the house and they burn it. Because this was part of the Jewish law. If you look in your Bibles in Exodus chapter 12, when they were in Egypt and, and the, the, the first concept of the Passover, of, the, of passing over their homes and not killing their firstborn, we see in Exodus chapter 12. It says, For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what's leaven, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Leaven, big red circle around it with a slash through the middle. No leaven. It needs to be out of the house. When? In relation to Passover. 
before. Before you celebrate the Passover. So now, think in that with those, listen with those Jewish ears. And Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The lamb has already been sacrificed. We've already had our Passover lamb. There shouldn't be any leaven in the house. There shouldn't be any, any leaven. And you know, you know what happens to leaven when you put it in dough. I always liked hearing, I think the first sourdough bread came out of California. And it's certain bacteria, I guess, certain, certain type of. And when you get done with sourdough, you would pinch off a little bit and throw it back in the barrel of dough. And the, the yeast, the bacteria, whatever's in it, would, would spread through the rest of the dough. And as long as you keep it going. Some of you ladies, when I was growing up here, did the little friendship bread thing and the little baggies. And, you know, you'd make, Karen, you'd make a couple of extras to, to send to somebody else. And so this idea, so we understand this idea of yeast and leaven, and it, it perpetuates, and it, and it spreads. And, and so he says, you need to clean out the leaven. You need to have this, this leaven out of the church. i ask you a question. Is sin very contagious? Now, some of you are teachers. If you're in a classroom, and one of the kids starts acting up, and you don't deal with it, what happens? They all, they all start acting up. Those of you who have raised children, if the kids watch one kid getting away with something, what happens? They all, ah, I sense weakness. I, I see a hole in the wall. I see a, a, a breach in the dam. There's, there's something there that I can get away with. There's something. And, and you see in, in soccer games, you see in cities that, that start having riots, you see that it, what starts small becomes large. Now, is that true of sin? Let's see what the Bible says. Look in your Bibles in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like what? Like gangrene. Have you ever seen gangrene? Foot rot? It, it, the, 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 the way it spreads and decays. And, and he says this talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying the resurrection has already happened. And the Bible says but it's not affecting anybody else. It's only affecting them. Does anybody's Bible say that? No, it says they are upsetting the faith of some. They have got a belief that's wrong and they're spreading it. And, and it's upsetting other people. It's upsetting other faiths. Look in Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. In Titus chapter 1, you have these qualifications for elders and they need to be godly men who are grounded in the truth and who stand uh, with God's word. And, and you see all of this and, and sometimes we forget why. why you know, it's, it's not just for a, a contest to see who's a faithful Christian, but the Bible tells us why. Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's a dual. needs to be able to teach the truth and also contradict the falsehood. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Why? What does your Bible say? Why, why was it so important to stop 
the wrong thinking and wrong talking. It says right here, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Spread like gangrene. Upsetting families. Upsetting the faith of others. So you, you have this idea that it's not just for the good of the individual, but it's also good for the, for the church. Now let's go back. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where we looked at the power and, and the purpose behind it. But what about the, the recipient of it? And evidently, Paul was clarifying a, a misunderstanding they had in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. If I told you, okay, when we all leave here and you got into your jobs this week, I want you to do something for me. Do not speak to anyone who's sexually immoral or greedy, or has put something above God in their lives, and we'll all meet back here on Sunday. Could, could you do it? Could you go out there in the world? Could you go to your jobs? Could you go to your neighbors? Could you and say, oh, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't be around you. You're, you're sexually immoral, you're greedy. You're... And, and Paul says, I didn't mean the sexually immoral of the world, or, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world, which is exactly what monasteries and abbeys have done. Let's take the holiest people in our belief system and put them somewhere where they don't have contact with anybody. Do you believe, do you believe in that? Paul didn't. Paul, Paul didn't. If this is what I meant, if I meant you couldn't have any contact with sinful people, and if we wanted to answer that, even not from Paul, who did Jesus spend his time with? Tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes, and when they question him on that, you know, why, why are you with them? Why aren't you with us? He said, "It is not the healthy who need a physician. I didn't come for the for the righteous. I I came for the sick. I came for the sinners. I came for those who who needed a physician." And, and so Paul is telling them, "I wasn't telling you not to associate with the immoral in the world. In fact, that's our mission field. We, we don't go out in the world looking for righteous people. We go out." Searching for the lost. But now I'm writing to you not to associate. You know, that, that word is interesting. It means um, uh, to mix together or keep company with. It's, it's not casual contact. It's, you know, if you were to take two things and mix them together. And we, we talk about my, my daughter, my youngest daughter and her friend. And we talk about them um, being inseparable. And we have words like thick as thieves and things like that. And we think about mixing with with people and having those abiding relationships. And he's talking about um, not to associate, not to mix with anyone who, who bears the name of brother. So Paul, Paul's not saying anyone who may have been guilty in the past because in the very next chapter, he talks about the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, uh, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you. So Paul is not saying, don't associate with anyone who was ever this. He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or a so-called brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Especially in the Middle East, sharing a meal with someone implied fellowship. And, and closeness. And, and even now, when they sign agreements and treaties and things over in the Middle East and places like that, they're almost always concluded with a meal. 
it's a very, very cultural thing, very much a part of, of that cultural thing. And so you can get the idea not to, not to give your blessing by your actions, by what you do, with, with a so-called brother, someone who is saying they're a Christian, but living like what? Living like the world. And, and I, I think we understand, that, like in, in the first, second, and third John, the Bible talks about the one who is in Christ does not continue in sin, doesn't, doesn't sin, doesn't keep sinning. It's not a way of life. We're not talking about the, the person who is trying to live according to God's will and sins and repents and asks for forgiveness because that would include all of us. We're talking about the one who is sexually immoral. The church isn't mourning and, and neither is he. Uh, everything is okay. Don't talk to me about it. Don't deal with it. And, and Paul says, no, no, this isn't good. For, the, for his soul, for the, for the salvation of his soul, you need to remove him from you. You need to have something here uh, to get his attention. Don't mix together. Don't associate. Don't keep company with. And this is, always the, this is always the response. But won't that hurt their feelings? Won't that hurt their feelings? You know what the answer is? Well, hopefully. <laughs> and, and that is very contrary to what the world teaches. But, but the idea, I want you to look at, it at a couple of verses quickly. Look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14. Paul has written about idleness and about certain things in the church in Thessalonica. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14, he says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them. And then at the end of that verse, it tells why. That he may be ashamed. Do you know what? Parents say to their kids that, that was very easy to understand. When, if I had done something wrong or something that was embarrassing, maybe to the whole family, you, you can finish this sentence. You ought to be, uh huh. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. What what does a parent mean when they say that? You ought to acknowledge that what you did was wrong. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. What was one of the problems in the Old Testament? My people have forgotten. How to blush. Uh, my, my people have forgotten how to blush. They no longer know how to blush. They're no longer ashamed of things. They, they no longer feel that sense of, of, of wrongness. And, and so the idea is, the idea is to, to let them feel that shame. Let them feel that, that separation. But the Bible says in verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy. This is not paybacks. This is not to hurt someone. Warn him as a Brother. Warn him as a brother. See, family. Family does this. Family warns each other. Family is there for each other to call each other. I have a coworker that I really enjoy working with, and, and if he sees me you know, saying something or doing something, in fact, I just, I just spoke to a, a man this last Sunday, and uh, I've been at Lake Houston almost 10 years now, and when I first came, I had a guy who came up and he told me, he said, you need to be more careful about talking about your wife and children from the pulpit. And I didn't know this guy very well. And I was, I was actually a little bit offended that he was kind of in, in my business. And, and I got in the car, and I didn't think I'd say that. I got in the car, to be, and, I, and I sat down, and I said, Heather, can you believe that Brother so-and-so said that, that I ought to be careful about what I, what I say and that I should be careful not to be insulting about y'all from the pulpit? And she didn't say anything, and I thought maybe she didn't hear me, and I turned over and looked at her. She had huge tears running down her cheeks. 
And she had just not wanted to tell me how much it hurt when I said something from the pulpit that was uh, that embarrassed her or embarrassed the children or made her look like a bad mother or something like that. She had just kept her mouth closed. And, and I, I went and told that guy, I said, I'm glad that you, even not knowing me very well, I'm glad you loved me enough to come up and tell me. He wasn't trying to hurt me. He, was, he wasn't treating me like an enemy. He wasn't trying to destroy my marriage. What was he doing? He said, I, I've been there. <laughs> he said, I've, I've been there. I, I can see what you're doing. I see you're not doing it intentionally. But if you love someone, you want to watch out for them. You don't want them to you don't want them to be lost. You don't want them to do something wrong. Don't admonish them as an enemy, but as a brother. And back in First Corinthians chapter five, when, when Paul is talking about this discipline, he, he says, For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It's not those is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Where do we often feel like our responsibility is to make things right? Out there. Do you know when you're going to fix out there? You're, you're not going to. The only way to fix out there is to get people from out there in here. You know, you, you, you're not going to you're not going to legislate them into morality. You're going to teach them about Jesus Christ and bring them into a, a moral and an ethical relationship with Him and His Word. We we reach out to the lost and we we bring them in. The world is always going to be opposed to Christ. And, and, that, and we have to continue to speak against those things. But our responsibility for, for disciplining the sin is, is in the church. God says, I will take care of those outside the church. And there's a purging nature to that discipline. Notice, he says, purge the evil person from among you. Remove, some translations say, remove the evil person from among you. Put away, take away. And it says, from among you, not from the world. Now, I want you to think about this. Um, Islam. What do they do for the infidel? They remove him from life. Really? I'm going to remove your head from your body. I mean, that radical. I, I'm going to cut your. I'm going to remove your, your your life. I'm going to remove you from this world. Christianity does not say remove the evil man from the living. Why not? You kill him in his sin. And he's lost for eternity. Paul says, remove him from among you so you might save his soul in the day of eternity. See, one religion says, kill the infidel because we hate him. Christianity says, remove the sinner because we love him. You can't get more backward than that. You can't get more opposite than that. Remove them because you love them. Because the intention is not to remove them forever, but to put that sin back in the world where it belongs. We're going to close with Matthew chapter 25. What are you trying to avoid? What are you trying to prevent? A purging in the church now with an eye toward the future so that there isn't a purging on that day. Matthew chapter 25. When it's talking about Jesus coming in judgment, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He'll sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He'll separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And we see two very different outcomes. In Matthew 25 and verse 41, then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, my very first preaching job, we had a, an elder 
and and I was a brand new preacher, maybe six months on the job, and um, a lady was in a situation that was sinful. She knew it was sinful. The whole church knew it was sinful, and the elders called her together and met with her, and they allowed me to be there, be there with them. And the lady turned to one of the elders and she said, Are you telling me that this and this and this is wrong and, and this is wrong? And that elder looked at her and he said, You can either hear it now or you can hear it on the day of judgment. And he, he just boohooed. his big tough rancher guy. And, and he just boohooed and said, I love you too much to wait until then for you to hear it. You know, someone, someone asked me, once when I was talking about church discipline back home. They said, yeah, Kevin, but have you ever seen it really work? Have you ever seen it? And I said, yes. I grew up at Grable Road. And any of you who have been here for a long time know that it has restored people to the Lord. I hope you remember. I, I, I remember as a kid growing up and thinking the church loved those people. They loved those men. They they didn't want them to die. The question on, on church discipline is how much do you really love somebody? It's the same question parents are asked about their children. Do you love them enough to do the right thing? You know, the customer may always be right, but the Christian is not. And when we are not right, when we're living in sin, nobody knows it more than we do. But that's when we can be the most stubborn. The most obstinate, we square our shoulders and cross our arms and we don't want anybody to say because we know and we hate to hear it. But if we love people, we'll say it anyway. Don't let anybody ever tell you that church discipline is about hurting people. If it's done according to God's will, it's to show them just how much you love them. So, thank you for listening.